The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to continue in our series in Matthew's Gospel as we concentrate on the Sermon on the Mount and on the beginning section of the Sermon on the Mount, which are called the Beatitudes, the series of blessings that Jesus ascribes to godly heart character. Sometimes you look up, sometimes you look down. What do I mean by that? Sometimes you look up to somebody who you have hurt and you're in the position of a beggar and you're asking for forgiveness and you're needy. Other times you're standing looking over somebody who's in that exact same position with you. What do you do in that situation? And Jesus said today, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Some time ago in studying church history, I came across a group of people that I came to love called the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists are related to Baptists theologically, although perhaps not historically. They were people who believed in believer baptism before anyone even thought about it. Back in the 16th century, the early 1500s, they believed that you should just take the New Testament and read it simply to try to find out how to run a local church. And they believed in separation of church and state when no one even thought about that. And for that last reason, they were seen to be dangerous people in society, kind of rebels. And so they were persecuted from pillar to post, both by Protestants and Catholics alike. And these peace-loving people, uh, most of them believed the same gospel that we do. Most of them believe in the same Jesus. Uh, Some of them had some strange ideas, it's true. But most of them were just simple believers. And they were chased and they were persecuted. And I came across a story which arrested me, and I've thought about it often since then. It was a story of an Anabaptist pastor who was being being chased uh, by a a member of the law, an officer. And they were seeking to, he was seeking to bring this man in for trial. And we knew what that meant. If you were brought in for trial, you almost certainly, as an Anabaptist, were going to be executed. And it was winter, and this man was running across a snowy field, and the man who was chasing him was gaining on him getting closer and closer, came to a frozen river. And he had to decide whether to risk his life trying to cross the uncertain ice or whether to turn back and face the man who was chasing him. He decided to risk the ice and he ran across. As he almost reached the other side and he actually had had gotten to the other bank, he heard a terrible crack behind him and he saw that his chaser, his persecutor, had fallen through the ice. Now he stood at a key moment. What would he do? What would you do if you were in that situation? Keep running, right? (laughs) Run faster. No, he didn't. He turned around because the man was calling for help. He knew that he would die. The the, the pastor knew that he would die if he didn't come back. And so he turned around and he risked his own life walking back on ice that has already been broken. And he leaned over and was able, through the providence of God, to bring this man back up out of the the cold water and up onto onto the shore. Took his cloak and put it around his persecutor. Warmed him, rubbed his shoulders, got him back, got his temperature back up to a normal. And the man started to feel a little bit stronger and stood up, and you know what he did? He arrested that pastor and brought him into town. 
And that man was, was prosecuted. He was convicted of being an Anabaptist. And back then, you know, of course, Anabaptists believe in total immersion baptism. And so those that persecuted thought that a good way to execute them would be by drowning. And so they brought this man back to the river, to that hole in the ice, and they drowned him in that hole. Now, this is a very fascinating story to me. Because you see the turnabout that keeps happening in the story. You see somebody in a position of strength chasing somebody who's in a position of weakness. Then the whole thing changes, doesn't it? Totally reverses. And then the person who was in the position of weakness is now in the position of strength. He's the only one who can pull him up out. And he does so. And then the whole thing switches again. And Jesus said that these key moments of life, what do you do? Are you merciful or are you merciless? It's very interesting how in the Sermon on the Mount we begin with a statement, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We already talked about that as being a beggar. Blessed are the spiritual beggars, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, refers to mourning over sin. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, refers to a heart attitude of submission, of yieldedness. And then he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Those first four heart qualities, those beatitudes, I, I, I looked at those first four and then the second four, the first of which is blessed are those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy, and blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, and then blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God, and blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first four looked different than the second four, I wasn't quite sure how. John MacArthur, a radio uh, preacher out west who I respect greatly, says that he thinks that the first four uh, are about inner things and the last four are about external things. The problem I have with that is that there's nothing more internal than Matthew 5.8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So I don't think that's a good distinction, but I do think there's a distinction. I try to figure out what it was. I think what's going on is with the first four, it's the preparatory work of the Spirit, and the second four are the outworkings of that preparation. The first four get our heart ready. The second four sees us moving out and starting to act differently. In terms of mercy, merciful, blessed are the merciful, it has to do with the way we interact with people around us. And we're going to see more about what the Bible means by mercy as we continue. But when we say, blessed are the pure in heart, you're moving out inwardly. You're moving out to put sin to death. Moving out to grow in holiness and in righteousness. You're seeing an effect. So it really is a cause and effect. We begin by heart attitudes that get us ready. And then the second four are effects of those heart at, that heart attitude. Effect of that preparation. But let's zero in now on what it says. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, Jesus' world is not, was not unlike our own in terms of mercy. Jesus' world was absolutely not characterized by mercy. Actually, Jesus' world could be considered to be unmerciful. Look at the Romans, for example. Have you ever seen uh, uh, a movie which showed gladiator fights in the Colosseum? I've seen a couple of them. We all know you get that image of the, of the hand-to-hand combat between the two. And at one point, one of them would gain the advantage of the, of the other, and he'd be lying flat, prostrate. And the other would put his, his, his foot on his chest and put the sword down at the, at, at the nape of his neck. And, and where would he look? He'd look up at the emperor. And you know what the emperor would do? He'd stick out his thumb like this, right? The moment of truth had arrived. Now, if the emperor went like this... It meant that that man was to show mercy to the fallen gladiator. He was not to kill him. And if his thumb went down, he was to kill him. He was to pursue and and finish it off. He was to kill him. Now, the crowd around the emperor was crying for blood. They wanted one thing and one thing only. And if the emperor's uh, hand and thumb ever went up, they would boo and hiss. Although not too loud, okay? Lest they might feel the emperor's wrath. But they wanted blood. And if the thumb went down, they would cheer with the crazy ferocity of wolves who smelt a little bit of blood. 
Jesus' age was an unmerciful age, and the Romans were unmerciful people. Actually, one of their philosophers, Seneca, said that mercy is a cancer of the soul. Now, you can see that the Romans had to take that attitude because they dominated the world. If they had had this kind of compassion and mercy, they would not have been world dominators, would they? And so you can see that this lines up with the way the Romans behaved. But it wasn't just the Romans. Look at the Jewish religious leaders. Would you say they were characterized by mercy? By no means. When someone was weak before them, they pointed the finger and accused them of sin. And time and time again, Jesus had conflicts with the Pharisees over this very issue of mercy. So Jesus' world, not, not unlike our own, is, a, is an age of unmercifulness. We also, here in America, I think we have tendencies in the same direction. People cheer at movies when somebody coldly blows someone else away for revenge's sake. That's total unmercy, isn't it? It's that coldness of heart. And the popular people, non-Christian people, kind of thrive on that kind of revenge motive. It's kind of exciting, isn't it? It gets the blood moving. But remember I said that the Beatitudes are really the cutting edge which separates Christians from non-Christians. If you look at this series of character traits here at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, you are not going to see anything which a non-Christian person will naturally exemplify. All of these attributes will come in only by the working of the Holy Spirit. And they all fit beautifully together in the heart of a Christian, but they have no place in the heart of a non-Christian. A Christian does not aspire to these things, cannot understand them. They are foolishness to him. But to a Christian, we look at this list and say, this is what I want to be. I want to be a spiritual beggar. I want to mourn over my sin. I yearn to be meek. I hunger and thirst for righteousness. I want to be merciful. Oh, how I want purity of heart. You see, these are characteristics that a Christian wants, not a non-Christian. And so it shouldn't surprise us that this separates us from the world, this attitude and this concept of mercy. Now, mercy comes right to the heart of God, doesn't it? The heart of God is mercy. The heart of what he has done in the law and the prophets and the old covenant was mercy. The whole system was set up to demonstrate God's mercy. Well, let's try to understand how that works. Mercy functions, at least in terms of what I'm speaking of, the mercy of God, it functions in a context of sin, doesn't it? It functions in a context when one person knows that there's nothing they can say. They have done wrong. I want you to do something. Think, think about yourself. Maybe close your eyes, or if you can imagine with your eyes open, go ahead and do that. Imagine yourself standing before the judgment seat of God on Judgment Day. And imagine all of the holy angels and the books there. It's Judgment Day. And imagine clenching up your fist and stomping your foot and saying to God, Give me only what I truly deserve. I don't want anything but what I truly deserve, God. I want, just give me justice. That's what I want. Is that what you want? On Judgment Day, is that what you want? No, you want mercy. You don't want justice. Now, God will be just. He is a just God. But you are yearning for mercy. And mercy cannot be demanded, can it? It can only be begged for. Do you see how this fits beautifully with blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs of the kingdom? You cannot demand mercy. You only beg for it. And God grants it freely as a gift. It's not a wage. It's not something we deserve. It's just something He gives. And so mercy functions in the context of sin and weakness. But it's important for you to understand how close to the heart of God mercy is. There was an interaction that Moses had in the tent of meeting with God. And he wanted to have fellowship with God and he wanted to see God. And that wasn't permitted. He was not allowed to see God because no one could see his face and live. I'll get to that in a minute when I talk about the next beatitude. But Moses could not see the face of God. But God said, I will come down and I will pronounce my name to you. I will speak my name into your ears. Oh, wouldn't you have loved to have been there? Wouldn't you love to have God come before you and pronounce his name into your ears? Oh, what a moment that must have been for Moses. 
And it says that the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. If you sum up all of that, you get mercy. God loves us in a way that he does not treat us as our sins deserve. Isn't that what mercy is all about, to not treat one as their sins deserve? And that's what God does. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. This morning you got up and you were under the blessing of a, of a promise that had been made, a statement about God. In Lamentations chapter 3, it says that the mercies of God are new every morning, for His compassions never fail. Great is thy faithfulness. Every day we see that. We see the sun come up. And we enjoy the fellowship of one another. We eat food. We wear clothes. We are under the mercy of God. We as Christians are in a deeper level. We have had all of our sins forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. We live in the land of the mercy of God. But you know, it wasn't until Jesus came to earth that mercy became incarnate. That mercy took on a body. Jesus was mercy incarnate. Just think about it. Jesus' miracles were merciful, weren't they? Look at his, his, his miracles. If, if you were to look over it, turn, turn, if you will, over to Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. Just a few pages, maybe one or two pages over. <clears throat> it says, as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, what do they call out? Look at that. Lord, or have mercy on us, son of David. They called out, have mercy on us, son of David. What did the blind man, blind men, these two blind men mean when they said, have mercy on us, son of David? What did they want? They wanted to receive their sight. And so a re restoration of sight was mercy from Jesus to the blind people. If you were to turn over, you don't have to do it, but if you were to turn over to Matthew 15, 22, you'd see the same thing. A Canaanite woman comes to him crying out, and, and she says the same thing. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is su suffering terribly from demon possession. So what would mercy be from Jesus to this woman or to the daughter? That the demon would be cast out. Hmm. So we're getting a kind of a broader understanding of mercy here. The same thing over in Matthew 17. Turn over Matthew 17, 14. It says, when they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he says. He has seizures and is suffering terribly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. How would that man define mercy at that moment? That Jesus would heal his son. Okay, so now I think we see two aspects of mercy. Mercy is a matter of the forgiveness of sins, and it is also a matter of the alleviation of the effect of sin. We forgive sinners, and we also try to alleviate the suffering that comes as a result of sin. It's both. And so Christians throughout church history have sought to do what we call acts of mercy. Acts of mercy. We have started more hospitals. We've started more orphanages, more poor homes. We have done more ministry to the poor and needy of the world than any other group, any other religion, without question. No one comes close to us in this matter. And why? Because the heart of the Lord, the heart of Jesus Christ is mercy. But it's a matter of forgiveness of sins, yes, but also of the alleviation of physical suffering. Jesus also was mercy incarnate, if you turn back to the Sermon on the Mount. He was mercy incarnate uh, when he said in Matthew 9, he was having dinner uh, at Matthew's house. And it says, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. 
The story's in Matthew 9, verse 10 through 13, which you don't have to look there if you don't want. It says, When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then he gave them a lesson. He said, I'm going to give you a Bible lesson. You study the Bible all the time. Here's a, here's a, here's a, a, a work of homework for you. Go home and study. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So here Jesus comes into conflict with the Pharisees on this very issue of mercy. And he gives them a Bible study. He said, go home and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Well, what does that mean? First of all, it's an Old Testament quotation from one of the prophets. And Jesus, when he's quoting it, he's saying that the heart of the entire sacrificial system, of all the laws you seek to follow, is the mercy of God to sinners. The commitment of God to not treat sinners as they truly deserve. And you Pharisees, with your meticulous law-keeping, with your finger-point and all that, you don't, you've missed the whole point of all the law. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Later in Matthew 12, verse 7, it, it, it was uncovered that they hadn't done their homework. Now, when you go to Sunday school and you're given an assignment, when you come the next week, did you do it? Well, Jesus uncovered their lack of preparation. Because they came and they accused the, the disciples in Matthew 12 of doing work on the Sabbath. They were just picking some grain and eating it. And this meticulous little law, no work on the Sabbath, they were hot on that one. And Jesus said, if you had learned, if you had done what I told you to do and learned what, what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. So Jesus, the heart of Jesus' teaching was the mercy of God. Merciful precepts, that was Jesus. Learn what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. But the absolute center and core of Jesus' mercy was demonstrated when he died on the cross for sin. Jesus went up on the cross, was nailed to the cross for many reasons. It fulfilled many aspects of the righteousness and the perfection of God. Many aspects, not just one. But one of the things that was fulfilled and demonstrated there was the mercy of God. Jesus died for mercy. So that we would not have to suffer the wrath of God, the eternal condemnation which righteously comes to all sinners, eternal separation and suffering in hell, which we truly deserve for our sin. If you were to stomp your feet on judgment day and say, give me what I truly deserve, and God granted your wish, you would get eternal condemnation in hell. Jesus came to take that punishment on himself so that we might have eternal life. And so Titus 3, verse 5 says, When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we have done, but because of His what? His mercy. His mercy. And so Jesus was and is mercy incarnate. Now, mercy fits together with some other aspects, uh, other beautiful attributes of the heart of God in ways that's hard to understand. For example, what is the relationship between grace and mercy? We know that Paul in Thessalonians says, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a strong connection between grace and mercy. But I look at it this way. Grace is a loving response when the opposite is deserved. Grace is a loving response when we deserve condemnation. But mercy is a loving response which is evoked by the pity, piteous uh, capability or the piteous situation of the person asking for it. You look at the person and you see them in a piteous state and you have compassion on them. And so Jesus' compassion and his love is connected to his mercy. And so it is with us as well. So what is that? how does this affect our lives? What effect does this have? It has a, a significant effect. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they, and in the Greek it, it stresses, they and they only will receive mercy. Only the merciful will be shown mercy on judgment day. So look at your life. Would you say you're characterized by mercy? When someone comes to you for, for forgiveness, are you cold-hearted toward them and make them suffer? Do you leave them twisting in the breeze? 
Or do you, from the heart, readily, quickly forgive? Which? When you drive through the disadvantaged areas of the town here, and you see the effect of generations, perhaps, of, of sin and suffering, some done by those people themselves and some not, and you see the effects of sin, what do you feel in your heart? Do you feel a kind of a cold aloofness? A judgmental attitude? Or would you do what Jesus would do? If they were crying out to you, have mercy on us, would you stop? Would you have mercy? I know Jesus would. I want our congregation to be characterized by mercy. The ability to forgive one another when transgression occurs. But also the ability to alleviate suffering which has come through sin. We are positioned physically, in terms of where our church is located, to be merciful in ways that many other churches aren't. We must be a merciful congregation in the way that Jesus was. How does Jesus get us on this one? He takes our arm and twists it behind our back. He told a story about that. He said the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. In case you didn't know that the entire Roman Empire collected about 8,500 talents in one year in taxes. So that's like the gross national product of the Roman Empire. The gross national product of America. You owe $1 trillion to God. Or $1.3 trillion. That's what you owe. You say, it can't be. It is that bad. That's the holiness of God, and that's the sinfulness of our human heart. It is that bad. But anyway, the, the story went on. The king ordered that the man and his, and his wife and his family and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The man fell on his knees before him and said, be merciful to me. Please forgive me. Well, in compassion, the king had mercy on him and canceled all that debt. Well, when that man went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him about a third of a year's wages, maybe about 20,000 bucks. Is that a significant debt? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But he looked at that man and said, well, he didn't just say something. He grabbed him by the throat and began to choke him and shook him and said, pay me what you owe me. And that servant fell on his knees before him. And this should sound familiar. Be patient with me and I will pay you back. The exact same thing he had said to the king. Sometimes you look up, sometimes you look down. At that point he was looking down at a man who was kneeling before him. And he refused. He had the man thrown off and put in prison until he should pay the debt. Well, the other servants heard about this and they went and told the king. And the king went and hauled this man in and said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant? And just as I had on you. Probably this week, probably this week, you're going to have the opportunity to be merciful to somebody who needs your mercy. Jesus said, if you are truly saved, you'll be merciful. And if you're not, you won't. It's a test of character. And so also is the next beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, I've thought much about this, and I've thought about this heart characteristic, purity of heart. Remember that I said that the entire Sermon on the Mount is summed up by two words, I believe. Heart righteousness. Genuine Christianity, heart righteousness. So don't you think we need to know what the heart is and what purity of heart is in in order to understand this? Because again, the Greek is emphatic. Blessed are the pure in heart for they and they only will see God. So we need to understand it. First of all, we have to understand the God who is the one who gives this command, the God who is purity itself. First John says that God is light, and in Him there is no what? No darkness at all. God is pure light, and He expects His children to be pure light as well, holy and blameless in His sight. And so He says, blessed are the pure in heart. Now, what is purity? Have you ever heard of ivory soap? Of course you have. Now, what does ivory soap claim? To be 99 and 44, 100% what? 
pure. I've never been able to figure that out. I look at purity as a kind of a perfect word. You either are or you aren't, right? But they say, we've really worked at it, and this is the best we could do. We couldn't get that last 56 one-hundredths of a percent. But we got close. So when you get, when you get ivory soap, you get soap and nothing but soap. Isn't that what purity means? It means singleness of composition. It means nothing is in there except what should be there. Purity of composition. There's only one thing there, ivory soap. Okay, so it's saying that our hearts should be pure. There should be a singleness of composition to our heart. Well, what is the heart? Now, I gave you a quick definition before, but I've done a more thorough study on what the heart does. The heart, I think, does five things. If you, through your study of Scripture, can add to this list, please come and tell me. But I've come up with these five things that the heart does. The heart is that which thinks. The heart is that which feels. That which wants or desires. That which chooses or decides. And that which believes. So I've looked up all the verses of heart and I've kind of categorized them this way. First of all, that which thinks. It says in Genesis 6, verse 5, that the Lord, looking down right before the flood, saw that every inclination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil all the time. Look at that phrase, thoughts of men's heart. So you think in your heart. You use your heart to think. And so Jesus, later in the Sermon on the Mount, says, I tell you the truth, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already done what? Committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, he thought about it. The heart thinks. And then Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21, he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, that doesn't mean the part of you that pumps blood. You would die, of course. It means that center of you that thinks. Where you're, the thing that you really value in life, that's what you'll think about the most. What do you think about the most? That shows what you really value in life. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Secondly, the heart is that part of you that feels. What moves you to tears? What moves you emotionally? What moves you to elation and joy? Something, I hope, other than the success of your athletic team. You know, what moves you to joy? What moves you to sorrow? What moves you emotionally? The heart has emotion. Paul says negatively in Romans 9.2, talking about the fact that, that the Israelites were not being saved. They were not responding to, to Christ. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish where? In my heart. It's the part of you that feels. All right. Thirdly, it's the part of you that desires or wants. It's the part of you that attaches uh, a yearning after something. It's the part of you that covets, let's say. It says in Proverbs 6.25, negatively, talking to a young man in re relation to a prostitute or to an adulter adulteress, it says, do not lust in your heart after her beauty or let her captivate you with her eyes. So it's the part of you that wants something or that desires. It's the part of you also that chooses or decides. Hebrews 3.8 says, if today you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as they did in the rebellion. Well, what does it mean to harden your heart? It means to affect your will so that you choose the opposite of what God is leading you to. It's a, it affects the choice, the part of you that chooses. And then finally, the heart is the part that, that, that believes. It says in, in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe where? In your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the heart believes. Can you think of anything else the heart does? Did I miss anything? If you can think of anything, come and tell me. We'll go with those five right now. So let's bring that back to purity of heart. What that means is the part of you that thinks, the part of you that feels, the part of you that wants, the part of you that decides, the part of you that believes should be single in composition. It should be pure and free from all unrighteousness. It should be holy. And if it's not, you won't see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they and they alone will see God. Now, the thing that's shocking about all this is the very idea that the human heart can be pure. I mean, isn't that shocking? 
Isn't that really remarkable that the human heart could be pure? If you don't think so, listen to these verses. This is what Jesus had to say about the human heart. In Matthew 15, 19, it says that out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands doesn't make him unclean. The heart defiles you. It's like a, a, a pump of cesspool. It just flows out and defiles who you are. That's the natural human heart. Jeremiah adds his testimony to this in Jeremiah 17.9. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Well, there's one who can understand it. God says so. He says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I examine the mind and I reward a man according to his conduct. God understands the heart. He searches the heart. He knows it. But he says, Your natural heart is deceptive and wicked and tricky. And you can fool yourself about whether you're in a right relationship with God or any, any one of a number of things. That's the natural human heart. What's incredible here is that the human heart can actually be pure. Is, is it even possible that the human heart can be pure? And that's the beauty of the blood of Christ. For there's going to come a day when the contents of your heart will be opened up and revealed. It's called Judgment Day. I listened to a description of it, Daniel 7, 9 and 10. As I looked, the thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Oh, what a day. What a day. Now, what's in those books? The content of our hearts. The content of our hearts is in the, in the books. Well, what do the books say? What Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, I tell you the truth, you'll have to give an account on Judgment Day for every careless word you have spoken. Every careless word and every careless thought as well. The contents of the heart will be open and exposed on that day. Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. And 1 Thessalonians 4, 5 says, The Lord will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. So the point is that God will, on judgment day, expose our hearts. Hmm. What can purify our hearts? What can make me clean? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus' blood was shed to purify you from all sin so that you can stand before God holy and blameless in His sight. Holy and blameless in His sight. Now let me ask you a question. Do some self-diagnosis. Is your heart pure? What does your mind think about when it slips into neutral? If I were to have a screen come down here, and we were to put up on the screen your, the thoughts of your life of the last 24 hours, what would we see? Ooh, can you imagine? Well, that's what Judgment Day is all about, isn't it? This is 24 hours. Imagine 75 years or 90 years of that. But what's, what's your mind's natural state? What do you naturally think about? What, what, what naturally excites you? Or what kind of affections do you have? What kinds of things do you choose? What do you want? Or what do you believe? Search your heart. I would, I would, if I were you, I'd invite the Holy Spirit to come alongside and search your heart. Let Him show it to you. Hmm. I think that without purity of heart, we are not what we seem to be. Isn't that true? We present ourselves one way, but we really are something else. What do you call somebody who consistently present themselves one way, but inside they're totally different? A hypocrite, that's right. A whitewashed tomb, beautiful on the outside, full of dead men's bones and everything unclean on the inside. 
Now, what happens to hypocrites on judgment? They, they get exposed. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Don't be deceived. Search your heart and see if you're truly in the faith. That's what Jesus is charging us to do. Ongoing purification of the heart is absolutely essential. Now, God says total purity of heart is essential for going to heaven. He says it in Psalm 24, 3. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. But if you search inward and you say, my heart isn't clean, it's not pure, then you know that only the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse you from sin. Do you believe in Jesus? And have you taken the application of the blood of Christ through faith? It's the only thing in the world that can cleanse impurity of heart. But then what happens after that? You say, well, I came to faith in Christ. I believe. Well, I'm glad. I praise God for that. Well, what's happened since then? The Holy Spirit then comes in. You know what he begins to do? He begins to purify your heart. He begins to change you. And without that ongoing purification, you're not in Christ. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. He is holy, and he begins to toss things out. No, no, that's got to go. Get rid of that. We've got to get rid of this. And he cleans you out. Like Jesus at the temple, he takes a whip and he just drives those beasts out of there. And those unclean money changers gets them out of there. He's going to clean your heart up. And if that ongoing heart purification isn't going on in you, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. Now, I'm not saying that if you occasionally sin, you're not a Christian. I'm saying if there's no principle of the ongoing purification of sin by the Holy Spirit, you're not in Christ. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. And look at the reward. I told you there's two shocking aspects to this. Blessed are the pure in heart. Can the human heart be pure? Yes, through the blood of Jesus Christ. By faith in Christ, all your sins can be cleansed. All of them, past, present, and future, forgiven. And you will stand before God holy and blameless on Judgment Day, free from all sin and accusation. <laughs> but the second part is just as amazing. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Can a human being really look on the face of God? You know, no one's ever done it. Did you know that? It says in John 1, no one has ever seen God at any time. I don't care how holy you were. I don't care if you were Daniel. I don't care if you were Job. I don't care if you were Moses. You never looked on the face of God because no one could look on him and live. Hmm. But God has promised that if we submit to his purification through the blood of Jesus Christ, we will see him face to face. Aren't you yearning for that day? And so it says, behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Behold, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, we will be like Him. For we will see Him as He is. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, it's so beautiful. But look at the next verse. Everyone who has this hope in Him does what? Purifies himself just as He is pure. And so it says in Hebrews 12, 14, Make every effort to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So you have to have this principle of ongoing purity. And if you're a Christian, you will succeed. In the end, by the purity of the blood of Christ and by the glorification which the vision of Jesus brings about, you will be totally like Jesus, holy and blameless in His sight. Don't you yearn for that day? So what am I charging you to do today? How can we become pure in heart? I'm going to keep bringing you back to Matthew 5.3. Blessed are the spiritual beggars. Do you feel lack inside you right now? As you think about it, do you feel like you're not what you should be? Good. Good. That means you're listening to the word. Go back to Matthew 5.3. Blessed are those who beg God, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then Matthew 5.6. Blessed are those who what? Hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. You'll eat like a feast. So I say, recognize first of all that the Holy Spirit alone can do this in you. 
and that he will do it in you if you submit to his leadership. Allow him to search your thoughts, your passions, your desires, the things you choose. Pray with King David, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and see my anxious ways. Allow him to move through your heart. Be open for him to show you sin and uncleanness. And when it comes, confess it. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to purify us. Isn't that beautiful? Through our confession and through faith in Christ, we are purified from all sin and uncleanness. Confess your sin. Take time to mourn over it, though. Don't go so quickly. Mourn over the sin. Allow it to hurt before you just quickly accept this forgiveness. And then be a spiritual beggar every day. Begin each day by saying, God, here I am as a beggar. I kneel before you and I say, Make me more pure today than I was yesterday. Purify me. Be merciful to me, the sinner, and purify me. And then concentrate on your thought life. I was talking to somebody recently. I said, how can you control your thoughts? I said, all right, have you ever been to the Golden Corral? How many of you have been to the Golden Corral? Now, the Golden Corral is um, a buffet kind of place where you take a plate, right, and you walk from place to place. And what's right here? You've got your seafood. Forget it. All right, you move on, and then you've got your... Um, Yams or sweet potatoes, whatever. Do you like sweet potatoes? Well, if you like sweet potatoes, what are you going to do? And take your spoon, you're going to put a heaping on your plate, right? Put it back. What's next? What? Meat, maybe uh, sauerkraut? You like sauerkraut? Nah, I don't know. Like that. All right, move on down. And uh, here's the dessert section, heaping portion there, right? Or then a baked potato. You see how it works? Now think about your thoughts that way. As you're moving through life, Satan is going to try to hand you some things. What do you take the spoon and heap onto your plate? What do you put there? That's what you want to eat. You see? There's no problem with something coming through your mind. As soon as you recognize what it is, you kick it right out. It's from Satan, right? There's, no, there's nothing. That's just temptation is all that is. But what do you get the spoonful of and put on your plate? Now, that's what you're culpable for. Control your thoughts. Because it says in Colossians 3.1 that we are to fix our minds on things above, not on earthly things. You're able to control your thoughts. And you're able to be pure in heart. And then finally, I would recommend that each one of you give careful attention to secret acts of worship that no one will ever know about. I mean, things you do in terms of giving financially, in terms of prayer, worship, certain commitments you make that you never tell anyone about, ever. That shows that you're yearning after purity of heart when only God can see you. Now, today I'm speaking to all kinds of people. But basically two groups. Those who have been born again through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ and those who haven't. If you don't know anything about the purity of heart I'm talking about today, and if you feel that God is leading you to receive the forgiveness that He can alone give through Jesus Christ, today for you is a day in which you can call on the name of the Lord. If today you hear His voice, don't harden your heart, but yield to Him and receive Him as your Lord and Savior. You're going to have a moment. We have an invitation hymn, a chance for you to come forward. There's nothing significant about that moment, but there is something significant about the leading of the Holy Spirit. If He leads you to follow Him, then follow Him. If any of you who are here would like to come forward and become members of this church and go through a membership class like we had, you're welcome to come forward and become a member as well. And by the way, if there's any members who are already members and you'd like to go through this class and learn about some of the things we've talked about, come and see me. The class is open to uh, people who are already members as well. And finally, if you feel like you'd just like to come up here and kneel down and pray and just confess sin to God and be with Him, you're welcome to do that as well, whatever He leads you to do. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians 
make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.